Today's read, Midnight and the Meaning of Love by Sister Soldier. Part 2, Japan Story, Chapter 1, Diamonds in the Sky. First, darkness, and then a small spotlight, Akimi's thick, natural lips appeared. They began moving, speaking to me in her foreign tongue. Her voice was a melody of whispers. Her words were not as important as their intensity or the subtle shapes that her lips made when forming certain phrases. She had perfectly white teeth in both worlds, the real one and the one I was seeing now. And a pretty, pretty smile. Uniquely shaped eyes, wide and dark, filled with both curiosity and mischief. Hers were magnetic and seductive. Those eyes of hers always shined for me and reflected my image in them written with her confessions of love. I saw her long, pretty neck and lean and feminine shoulders where her dark hair draped. The feeling of her was all softness mixed with nothing else but sweetness. She was always warm for me and got more warmer the closer I came to her. Even when her lips were not moving, her silence was elegant and she made it known in her every gesture and movement that everything she had was exclusively for me. Suddenly I opened my eyes and these seductive images slipped away. Absence is a powerful aphrodisiac, I thought to myself, but I didn't want to go too deep, feel too much too soon or have a private reaction in a public place. Instead, I reached into my inside right pocket and pulled out the translation of the letter Akimi had written to me a week ago on Saturday, the last day that we saw one another in New York City. It was sealed in an envelope. Even though I had the option I had refused to read it while still standing on American soil, and before I was coasting through beautiful blue and white swirled skies to the land of the rising sun. I didn't want to know or hear anything from her that could possibly interrupt or delay or distract or discourage my journey to get what belonged to me, her now that I was suspended midair, with no possibility of anyone or anything turning me back, I opened it and read it slowly, carefully. Mayonaka, we are young but not too young to love. We are naive but not too naive to know what we are feeling. Who put this love into the atmosphere and this craving into our bodies? Who put this love into the atmosphere and this craving into our bodies? Who put this feeling into our hearts and these thoughts into our minds? Who brought us together if we were supposed to be apart? We did right 
So why do they say us is wrong? If not speaking any words in common could not stop our love. If being divided by culture or blood relations or even oceans could not stop our love. What can stop our love? No one. None. Nothing. Otason, please don't hate my father because Okasan loved him so. And I love my mother more than anyone could know. She has returned to the earth but lives on in my heart. Sometimes still we speak even though we are worlds apart. Daddy asks me, what do you see in him? I answer, a hot spring on top of a cold mountain or my bare skin against a sizzling hot rock. Remove him from your heart. Could I pull my teeth out one at a time or maybe peel off all my own skin beginning with my fingers? I couldn't ever. I need him like a poor girl needs everyday rice. He is the deepest feeling I have ever felt. Like water rushing down from the steepest waterfall. If you are asking me not to love him, kill me. But if I should be reborn, I would love him still. My soul loves his soul. His soul loves my soul. No one can say they love Akimi yet try to separate me from this feeling. Mayanaka, they could never understand us. How could they? They don't even want to. Mayanaka, I'm so nervous. read it once and then I read it again more slowly than the first time I imagined my wife locked in the bathroom in the VIP section at the Museum of Modern Art on the day of the New York and American debut of her artwork wrapped in an awesome kimono with a multi-million dollar hairstyle she stood barefooted on the cold marble floor with pretty feet and designer toenails. She was drawing kanji onto the page of her letter to me, the black ink smeared only by her tears, her heated thoughts and fears put into poetic verses. The crowd waited for her while she worried and waited for me. I could tell from her letter that she had argued with her father her heart being pulled to one side by the man who had sired her and pulled the other way by the man she had married. But I didn't know, never knew. She knew I didn't know what was happening to her. So she sent a woman flying by foot to my job in Chinatown to deliver a letter to me, written in a language that I couldn't understand because she felt that it was urgent and that something was about to go desperately wrong and even still she didn't spell her situation out clearly 
or fill the pages up with rage and curses, she knew that would be too much. She knew me and what I was capable of, so she tried to convey the seriousness of the situation in the carefully placed words of her poem. I could feel my love for her swelling in my chest. After the feeling subsided some, my brain took over and shifted strictly into strategy. I looked up the word Otosan, although I believed I already knew what it meant. It means father, and Okasan means mother. Would you like chicken or beef? The flight attendant had returned. For your dinner service, she added. I don't want anything, thank you, I told her. Something to drink? No, nothing, I responded. She smiled and moved on to the next passenger. All that hard memory work only ate up two more flight hours. Just as I reclined, random people in the cabin began getting up and heading for the bathroom. I glanced down the aisle and saw that there was a line building up. I decided to try out Yuka's music and slipped on the headphones. She was listening to Megadeth. Killing is my business. She must have liked heavy metal because that's what I was hearing. It was cool as long as it was instrumental. The bass player and the guitar player were killing it. But then some dude started screaming out his lyrics. His voice was so loud, rough, and scraggly that I couldn't even figure out if he was singing in Japanese or in English. I fast forwarded and the music got worse. I took it off and laid it to the side. The in-flight movie selection for your enjoyment tonight are Dragon Ball, Curse of the Blood Rubies, or The Color Purple. The announcement was made in Japanese and then in English. Unfastening my seatbelt, I got up to head to the men's room. I needed the short walk to splash some cold water on my face. As I walked the narrow aisle, the now familiar flight attendant approached heading in the opposite direction. I turned sideways to allow her through, yet still, she brushed her body against me. And when our bodies connected, she paused right there. When you're finished in the laboratory, stay in the back. I'll come and quiz you, she said with a lowered voice and then smiled and flashed forward. I didn't know what the fuck she was getting at. Coming out of the toilet, I bumped right into her. She was leaning on the opposite wall that was filled with compartments. Ready? she asked. Where are your cards? Let me see them. She held her hand out. She wore light pink tinted polish and had clean nails and a cheap watch. Realizing her intent, I pulled the cards out of my pocket so she could use them to quiz me. Ohayou gozaimasu, she said in a small voice not to disturb the other passengers. Good morning, I answered. Tasukete, she said smiling. Please help, I answered. Otosan, she asked. Father, I answered. Miji, to the right. Hidari, she said. Um, to the left, I answered. Masuku, straight. Chatomate, she asked. Um, wait a minute, I remembered. You're good, she said, smiling some more. 
Are you sure you didn't know these words before you boarded our plane? No. I smiled at her distrust. You have a great mind. At first, I was expecting to find an unaccompanied minor sitting in your seat. Instead, I found a handsome man. She gestured with one hand beside her face and moved it downward, actually touching me. Well-dressed and a genius, she tried to gas me up. Okay, one more. Here it goes, she said excitedly. Utsukuchi. Utsukushi. Please forgive my Japanese because I don't speak Japanese. Uh, I had a mental picture of the words I had printed on my cards and I didn't recall that word at all. That's not one of my words, I told her calmly. What does it mean? It means beautiful, she said, handed me back my cards and proceeded down the aisle before me. An elderly woman seated seated in the last row beside the men's room lifted her mask to reveal only one of her eyes and smiled at me. Then she put the mask back on. I guess she had overheard our exchange and had an opinion about it. Four more hours into the blackened and now cloudless sky, I became restless and wanted to get my music back. I headed up to seat 42A where I discovered three solid rows of teenage girls sitting side by side in Yuga section. I wondered what kind of group they were traveling in. I didn't see any adults, but I figured there had to be a chaperone. Come to think of it, there were not any complete families traveling on this flight. It seemed at least not in the coach section. Yuka, I called, but four arms went up immediately and all at once each turned on their overhead lights. Now, I had eight Asian eyes focused on me, but one girl in the middle didn't turn on her light. She was asleep. She was also pretty enough to distract me from swapping back my music. She was obviously Japanese and also obviously black. Her skin, the color of honey. Her eyelashes were as black as could be and unusually long. She wore cornrows, precise and perfect, that looked like bolts of lightning laid tight and zigzagging across her scalp. Her hair was thick like ours but long like theirs. I predicted that when she awakened and stood up, she would stand about five feet seven inches tall. Even though she was still sitting, I could see that she had the curves of a filled-out African female, but the delicate frame of a Japanese woman, too. I thought to myself, seeing her is like looking at a blue diamond, something you would hardly ever see, but if you happened to get a glimpse of one, you'd find yourself looking at it again and again. Chiasa. Yuka said. Her voice brought me back to the reason I was there. What does that mean? I asked her. Her name is Chiasa, she said, concerning the sleeping girl. I came for my walkman, I told her, but I glanced at the sleeping one again. She had a gold medal dangling on a red ribbon that she wore around her neck. It was rising up and down as she breathed in and out. Are you part of a team? I asked Yuka. 
The other three girls were all watching, curiously, but not speaking or joining in. I speak English, but my friends only speak a little, Yuka said, holding up her two fingers to gesture a little bit. Yuka turned her body around, away from me while still seated, revealing the chenille fabric kanji letters across the back of her jacket. Looking at them by the snatches of available light on the mostly darkened plane, I asked, What does it say? Girls Kendo Club of Japan, she said with pride. Kendo Club? I asked. We fight, she said, smiling. I laughed. What kind of fighting? Sword, she answered smoothly. I stepped back one step, impressed. How many are you? I asked. Sixteen, Yuka said. We are returning home from the competition. Your team won? I asked, while assuming. Our team came in third place, Yuka said. Then the girl seated next to her pointed to the sleeping girl, but didn't say anything. She won? I asked her. Chiasa won the one-on-one competition, Yuka said reluctantly. Now she's just sleeping. Yuka wanted me to stay and talk to her about music and everything else. How many pairs of sneakers do you have? Who's your favorite performing artist? Have you ever seen the movie named Wild Style? Is this your first trip to Japan? She hit me with a slew of questions. Meanwhile, her three friends watched intently and seemed impressed with her bilingual leader, with their bilingual leader, Yuka. They were in awe of her command of the all-English conversation. None of them could put together a complete English sentence, but when they did try and make little comments, I could understand their simple meaning and gestures each time. Each one of them was different from the others in looks and ways and feeling, and believe me, they checked me out thoroughly also. Let's trade something we don't have to take back, you get invited. I don't think so, I told her. Everything I have, I'm planning to keep. Just then, the sleeping girl shifted in her seat. Later, I said, and then turned to leave. Wait, Yuka said, you didn't tell us your name. I paused. Midnight, I answered. Oh, Yuka said, Doshiti. Huh? I asked. Why are you called Midnight? She asked, her head looking up to me from her seat. Why are you called Yuka? I asked, standing still in the aisle. I'll tell you, she volunteered. Chotomate, will you stay a little longer? I was noticing as I listened with the intent to learn that Yuka was mixing a sentence half in Japanese, the other half in English. Here, I'll write it up, I'll write it up for you. She took out a pen and some paper. All Japanese names have a meaning. It really depends on which kanji your parents used when they gave the name. My name is like this, she wrote on the paper. It means superior flower. Her name is Yuki. It's like this, she said, writing. It means snow. Her name is Hikari, and it means light. And her name is Chao. It means butterfly. I watched and listened closely. To me, the kanji writing always looked powerful, passionate, and mysterious, even without me knowing its meaning. 
Chiasa. What does her name mean? I asked casually, noticing that Yuka had skipped over her. I don't really know which kanji, Yuka answered hesitantly and laid her pen down on her tray. One thousand mornings, Yuki answered, proud to participate and overpronouncing and pushing out each English word separately. One thousand mornings, I repeated. Chiasa's name sounded soulful to me. Then I wondered about the true meaning of it. I wanted to know why she had that name, the story behind it. It sounded more powerful than the simple definitions of the other girls' names. What about yours? What does it mean? Yuka asked. Think about it, I answered. It was nice meeting you. Yuka, Yuki, Hikari, and Chao. They applauded because I remembered. I wondered if they had met other foreigners who couldn't remember or pronounce their short and simple names. Then I threw the thought right out of my mind. Them girls was just bored and anxious to get off this flight, same as me. We were all teenagers, traveling in an adult world, our bodies packed with energy, but forced to sit still on a flight for hours and hours. As I returned to my seat, I caught glimpses of one of the in-flight films playing on at least half of the screens in my area. Even without the volume, I could see a full cast of black men as fools, clowns, and useless, cruel creatures. Those are the black Americans, I thought to myself. With time, I became more and more anxious to see my wife so time cruelly doubled down and began to move twice as slow. We were halfway there now. I prepared to have the dinner that my family packed me, feeling some strange sense of comfort about eating as most of the other passengers slept. After washing up in the men's room and pulling down the shopping bag with the metal tiffin containers of my food, I hit the call button and requested water. Me too the flight attendant said, offering the Japanese word for water. Kapu, she said for cup. She looked at my food and said, Oishi mitai desu ka? It looks delicious. Karai, she asked. Is it spicy? She translated. Definitely spicy, I admitted, as I tried to write these new words that she was using down in my memory. Definitely better than plain food, she said, leaning in too close. She laughed, lightly. Right, was all I said. Finally, she left. As I enjoyed the way Sudanese leftovers can taste even better and even richer than when they were first prepared and served, I thought about how Ramadan began at sunset on Saturday in America, which meant fasting would begin at sunrise on Sunday morning. I kept myself occupied, trying to figure out what time it was now and what was my exact location over which country. I recalled the map I had surveyed, then purchased at Marty Bookbinder's bookstore. I was flying from the United States, New York to be exact, out over Alaska, past Canada, past the Siberian mountains, past Russia. Then I broke out into a smile. A man has to work hard for his woman, I thought. Moments later, 
I checked my watch, still set on New York Eastern Standard Time. Back in Brooklyn, it was 2 a.m. I cleaned up my area, content, and headed to the back to rinse my containers. Returning, I met Yuka walking up the aisle. We both stopped at my seat. As I packed the clean containers back into the shopping bag and pushed it back into the overhead compartment, Yuka made me an offer. Let me keep the music that you let me listen to before. You can choose one of these. I sat down, not feeling right about standing over her in such a closed-in area. She pulled up my tray from its side pocket, which made me have to straighten up my posture. She laid down a piece of paper shaped like a bird. It's a paper crane, you know, origami. It's good luck. Yuki made it. I just looked at it. It was crafted well, but I didn't feel no connection to it. She put a card down. It's a Japanese phone card. It's mine, but you'll need it, she said, so sure that she had me open. My non-response made her put down her next item. It was a red patch with two black swords clashing in midair. I liked it. It's from our dojo, she said, knowing it was worth more than the other choices she was offering. I figured it probably belonged to one of them girls or was supposed to be worn on their jacket, sleeve, or uniform. You must really like my music, I said. She ignored my statement and tried to flip it on me. You like it, I can tell, she said, then pointed at the patch. When you like something, it shows just a little on your face, she said, holding up her two fingers once again for a little bit. Oh, yeah? No one ever said that, I told her swiftly. Maybe they were not looking closely, she said, and held her hand out for my music. Take this one. I slid her the cassette Bangs had given me the other night. It was Frankie, Beverly, and Mays, a joint called Before I Let Go. Sweet Thing by Shaka Khan and a bunch of slow cuts I didn't want or need to feel. As she put it in her pocket, an older lady appeared and stood behind her in the aisle. Just one look the older lady gave her and no words. Yuka turned, bowed to the older woman, and then rushed up the aisle back to her seat. The lady turned and followed her and stood by her seat once she reached it. If she was scolding Yuka, it was a silent scolding because I could not hear a word or see her attitude in her gestures or body language. She must be her chaperone, I thought. Somehow, whatever adult is assigned to chaperone teenagers always falls asleep before us or is absent at the exact moment that something they are supposed to be preventing is going down. Or maybe she was seated up in business class or first class even as her girls were packed like sardines in coach. In the morning, the cabin lights were on full blast and it was too bright. I thought the sunlight was forcing me to squint, but it wasn't. The stink of pork hung in the stagnant air as passengers sucked down two one-inched cube squares of egg and one undercooked-looking slice of ham. I looked to my left toward the window as the passenger across the aisle at the window seat began lifting his window cover. It was actually nighttime all over again, although my watch set on American time read 6 a.m. We are one hour away from Narita Airport, 
The time in Tokyo is now 6 p.m. Your flight attendant will be coming through the cabin collecting your trays and accepting trash. We would appreciate your cooperation in keeping the aisles clear. We will be landing at 7 p.m. Tokyo time. Please accept and complete your landing cards and customs documents. Your flight attendants will be distributing them throughout the cabin. My tray was still up, but my patch was gone. I smiled at the thought that I had been hustled by Yuka, played out before I even touched down on their soil. I leaned over, thinking maybe I dropped it beneath my seat. When I raised my tray and leaned forward to look, I was more than surprised to see the patch sewn onto my jeans on my left leg. I pulled at it thinking, nah, this is impossible. But the patch didn't fall off or peel off into the palm of my hand either. It was stitched on crudely, not expertly, but attached. I sat up, put my right hand on my head instinctively and held it there. I imagined Yuga sitting in the aisle late at night next to my seat, sewing the patch on so secretly that even I could not feel or detect it. I felt a cross between being a dupe and being snagged off guard. The landing form required me to write in the address where I would be staying in Japan. I was also asked to report exactly how much money I was carrying. They asked if I'd ever been convicted of a crime. I answered thankfully, no. The paperwork warned that I must always be in possession of my passport as I traveled throughout their country. I printed in the address for Shinjuku Uchi, my hostel, located in Shinjuku, Tokyo. I filled out all the custom forms and pressed them inside my passport. I placed the items in my inside pocket and unfastened my seatbelt and stepped to the bathroom. When I returned to my seat, there was a folded piece of paper on my chair. I removed the paper and read it. It was an address with Yuka's full name on top as well as a telephone number. I pushed it in my pocket and sat down. I wondered about their whole crew, their ages and all. I was sure they were teens. A couple of them might have even been a couple years older than me. I was also sure that they could never guess my age either. Mostly, everybody thought I was older than I am. I don't correct them either. Fasten your seatbelts for landing. All standing passengers slowly returned to their own seats, pushed their belongings back into the overheads, lifted their window covers, raised their seats, and fastened their seatbelts. I can't front. My face was calm and regular, but now I was hyped up like crazy and completely awake. Narita Airport was very bright, clean, and well-organized. While riding the belt that moved hundreds of passengers forward as they stood still, I took note of the colorful photography. Among the advertisements were huge pictures of cherry blossom trees, various flowers, and even animals. It was as though they wanted us to feel outdoors while being indoors. When I looked out through the huge windows onto their tarmac, I saw several huge aircraft lined up from countries spanning the world. I watched 
as the luggage from arriving passengers was moved by conveyor onto luggage trucks and driven away to their terminals. The geography book I had read about Japan in the Open Mind Bookstore described it as a small island. As several uniformed workers in jumpsuits moved around the tarmac and the active airport extended as far as I could see in each direction, I thought to myself that this place looked huge, profitable, and powerful. On our way to customs through wide corridors that seemed empty except for the hundreds of passengers from our flight, I reached an intersecting corridor. A whole new flood of people joined in, and that made about 700 of us moving toward the customs area. Signs positioned above the flow of the people, printed in every language, broke up the huge crowd and ordered us to different locations. Japanese citizens returning home to Japan went one way, and all other passengers went the other, according to the signs that applied to them. When my group arrived at the designated location, we were met by about 15 floor guides, Japanese men and women in identical, spotless, and well-pressed uniforms, men in blue pants, white business shirts, and jackets, and women in jackets, white blouses, and skirts with silk scarves around their necks. Most of the women had their hair pulled back and expertly wrapped folded and pinned into an array of styles without a strand escaping. I noticed how they all held their hands interlocked in front of themselves, instead of casually at their sides. Their stance seemed trained and uniform. Red ropes directed all our movements, and from time to time, the guides used their hands to gesture without words, which I found interesting. They were all wearing white, sparkling clean gloves. The line advanced quietly and slowly. I thought about pulling out my pocket dictionary and practicing vocabulary words while I waited. I took a few steps forward, stopped, and took a quick look back. To my surprise, I saw the girl they said was named Chiasa on the line a few spaces back. I was perplexed now. She held an American passport in her hand. But wasn't she part of a Japanese girl's kendo team, just returning from a competition in America? I didn't want to stare, even though I was curious. I turned back toward the front, facing the single-file line that went on around a maze of ropes and barriers. Excuse me. Five minutes later, I looked back again. Immediately, I saw she was looking my way. We both shifted our eyes away from one another. One of the floor guides appeared on the opposite side of the rope where I was standing. I thought he was going to say something to me. Instead, he went to the man standing behind me, apparently a father with his wife and their two children. The floor guide held up the landing card as if to ask, where is it? The husband turned to his wife and she turned to her son. The floor guide pointed the four of them off the line and over to the desks where there were more cards available for completion. Now, Chiasa was standing directly behind me. I thought to myself, she feels like a gift from Allah, although I didn't really know the reason. 
Then I imagined if Akimi and I had a daughter, she would look like Chiasa. And what would our son look like? I wanted him to be black-skinned like me, although it would be okay if he weren't. But as I pictured, my great-grandfather, grandfather, father, myself, and then my son, I wanted us all to be similar in complexion, size, thought, and action. Sumimasen, move up, someone said softly. I stepped forward and looked back. When we were facing each other, we both asked one another at the same time, Are you American? Then we both smiled at the coincidence and we both answered simultaneously, No. Then we both looked at each other's hand, her left, my right, and we were both holding blue American passports with the eagle emblazoned in gold. Neither of us bothered to explain. Nice patch, she said, staring down at my pant leg. Is it just fashion or did you fight for it? Her, her arms were now folded in front of her and she was still holding on to her documents. I didn't fight for it, but I can fight, I answered her with a serious look. What's your weapon? I don't advertise it, I told her, but I know yours. Yours is the sword, I added, to let her know that this was not my first time seeing her. Her eyes widened a bit. I could see how her long lashes could shield anyone from seeing directly into her silver-gray eyes. I saw you sleeping on the plane, I revealed. I wasn't sleeping, she said, with a completely straight face. I was practicing. Practicing what, I asked. I was practicing making people feel sure that I was sleeping, she said. I paused. I thought our conversation was feeling strange. She was a young female traveling alone, and I was a young man doing the same. I just turned my attention back to the front of the line, moved a few spaces up, and waited. When people think that someone's asleep, they say things that they wouldn't say when the person is awake. She broke our silence, leaning in a bit to speak to me from behind. I get it, was all I said. Are you in the military? She asked. No, I responded, thinking to myself, maybe she is. She started this conversation asking me if I could fight and about my choice of weapons, and now if I was in an army. That's good, she smiled, and wanted to know, I wanted to know what her smile was about. Are you in the military, I asked her, but I wasn't serious. No, but my father is, she said. That straightened me. I knew the difference between a girl who has a father and a girl who does not. And I was sure now that since she mentioned her father, he would be standing somewhere near the luggage arrival waiting for his beautiful daughter to arrive back into his care. He's a decorated marksman. He could kill you from a long distance, she said calmly, as though this were casual, everyday information. I figured she wanted me to know that she is protected the way daughters who have fathers are protected. I got it. He has perfect vision, and so do I, she added. The feel to her was different than anything I ever felt coming off a girl. She didn't speak with arrogance or conceit or eagerness in her tone. 
yet she was softly saying some powerful and proud statements that lay on top of a hidden threat. And she was exotic and pretty as a puma. I turned forward and didn't say nothing back to her. Soon she stepped to my side, glanced at the landing card I was holding and asked, Are you staying in a hostel? Why, do you have a recommendation for me? I asked her, dodging. It depends on what you're here to do and see, she said, like it was a question. She wanted to know what I was in Japan for. I wasn't about to start spilling my guts on the line when I was about to meet up with a customs officer, so I didn't say. You're staying in Shinjuku. That's one five-second train stop away from me. I stay in Yoyogi with my grandfather. She was reading the documents as I held them in my hand. I told you, I have perfect vision. I saw it written on your cards, she said, answering a question that I never asked her. Nihongo ga hanasemasen? She asked sweetly, staring at me while one of her eyebrows raised up a bit, anticipating I would fail her test. But I was already searching my mind. I knew I had a phrase like that, written in my study cards. I had a six-second delay before I answered her. I, Nihongo ga hanasemasen, which means, no, I don't speak Japanese. It was the answer to her question. She laughed quietly, but still lifted her hand to cover her mouth and muffle her sound. With her hand lifted, I could see her landing card where she had entered her birth date. Now I knew that she was 16 years old, with a birthday coming up in two months, on July 25th. You will need a tour guide, she said, and you will need a translator. She raised both eyebrows this time. I'll get one, I told her. I'll take care of it. How many days are you staying here, she asked, while reaching into her pocketbook, placing her passport and landing cards inside, and then pulling out a small yellow calendar. She opened it up. The pages were worn. She ran her finger across the days of this month of May. She had something written in most of the boxes that represented the 31 days. A short stay, I said. I'm good, though. I'm meeting someone in Tokyo. With her calendar raised and covering her nose and mouth, only her eyes could be seen. We should meet for just one afternoon, you and I, she said. I was looking right back at her. Before I responded to her bold approach, she said, Let's meet up and fight. You said you can fight, right? She was straight-faced and feminine and soft, but her words were the opposite. Now, she was holding one hand behind her back. My natural smile broke out. I was considering how each woman is a different combination of traits. And what a combination this one had. Her voice was soft and slightly raspy like a girl on the third day of a cold, but the words coming out of her mouth didn't match her feminine appearance or sultry voice. I don't fight women, not ever, I told her truthfully. When I'm next to a woman, the last thing that I'm thinking is that she and I should fight. She stared for a few seconds and then smiled, but then she became suddenly shy. Besides, why would I fight a girl who just told me her father is a marksman? I reminded her. My father's stationed overseas right now. 
he won't be back to Japan until the autumn festival that she counted on her long slim fingers. She had clean nails, clipped short, and wore no jewelry. That's five months from now. But even though he's not here, if he thought someone had done something bad to me, he'd find him and kill him. If I had a daughter, I would do the same, I assured her. It wouldn't matter if they hid. My father can find anyone in the world, no matter where they run. I didn't comment any further. She had a strong love and a spoken loyalty and pride about her father, and I thought it was fly. You know, you've arrived during Golden Week, but you've already missed a lot of the events, she said, switching topics. Golden Week, what's that? I asked, completely blank about it. Golden Week, she repeated. It's the second largest Japanese holiday. All schools are closed, and many companies are also. It's called Golden Week, but sometimes it goes on for about 10 days to 2 weeks. Most Japanese spend this holiday with their families. A lot of us travel during this time, as you can see. I guess that's why there were so many sports teams on our flight. Immediately, my mind jumped to my wife. Maybe that's why she had been calling me from Iwa's house in Tokyo instead of from her own house in Kyoto. So, have I arrived at the beginning or the end of Golden Week, I asked her. The end, she responded. Hmm, I thought. Chiasa had given me useful information in less than five minutes. I was grateful. So, the person you're meeting in Tokyo, is it Yuka? She asked. Nah, I just met her on the plane, I told her. Good, because she's originally from Osaka. I was born in Tokyo and lived there my whole life. I used to deliver pizza on my motorcycle, so I know all the streets and cool places. You drive a motorcycle? Yes, my father bought it for me on my 16th birthday. It was an apology gift because I hadn't seen him for six months. My mother hated it, but I loved it. My mother will only pay for things that she likes me to do. So she pays for my piano lessons and dance classes because she says those things are for good Japanese girls. I have to work to pay for the lessons I want and the things I like. I hate playing the piano and dancing ballet, but I do it because it keeps my mother happy. She shifted her body slightly. Ballet dancing obviously kept her body right, I thought to myself. You said you'd stay with your grandfather? I reminded her. Yes, my parents are divorced. She admitted in a much softer voice with traces of hurt and regret. It was one of those nasty divorces. They don't speak to one another and I can't mention my father's name to my mother or ask any questions. They both love me, just not each other. I felt sorry that her mother and father had somehow lost their love for one another. It sounded foreign to me, losing love for anyone you had ever loved. And the same way, when I first laid eyes on this girl, I could see traces of her Japanese mother and her African father without ever seeing either of them or knowing them. I wondered now how they could have this lovely daughter together, see her, 
and not see themselves. When the father saw the mother through the daughter, didn't it make him remember loving his wife? Wouldn't it cause him to love her even more? I guess not. Man to man, I would want to ask these kinds of questions and get serious responses. When men gather, we don't talk like that. And the questions that sit on our minds, we won't ask. Again, I felt an urgency about my wife as I was being presented with the exact picture of what I never would allow to happen in my family. In the Quran, there are instructions about exactly how a divorce can be carried out. But divorce is discouraged in our way of life. The Quran gives a man not only instructions, but boundaries, limits, and goals to hold his head and his family together and to deal with his wife in a just way that will help them stay together. But my grandfather is cool. My mom is his daughter, so of course he loves her. But he loves my dad also, so I love him. So I stay with him. Anyway, I'll start school in one month and move out into the dorm. Oh yes, school in Japan begins in April. I know it starts in September in America, right? And ends in June? Well, here, our school year has just begun. Your school year just started in April, and already you're on vacation? I said thoughtfully. I know, it is different, but this is Japan. We do it our own way, she said, smiling. And while she smiled, I thought of how Akimi's father probably snatched her up and took her right to school to start the Japanese school year after her year of living and schooling in New York City had come to an end. He probably was acting as though nothing significant had really happened in her life. As though she never met me, fell in love, married, and gave me her oath and virginity in life. My school actually also began in April, but not for me. Foreign students had to come in and take an intensive Japanese language course. I didn't need to. I was born here, and I speak fluent Japanese and English. So you see, it works out good for you because now I'm off from school, and for 29,000 yen, I can show you around Tokyo for the next five days. I'll be your translator and your tour guide. I can meet you in the morning and stay each day until the job is done. She was speaking softly but with confidence and a gentle persuasion as though I had no choice but to go along with her plan. I was still stuck on the figure, 29,000 yen. I had not shifted my mind into their money exchange system yet, but the number she was throwing around sounded expensive, crazy extreme, and not happening. Where did you come up with that number, I asked her. That's how much it costs for my next flight lesson. I'm studying to get my pilot's license. She had my head spinning. Now I was picturing her in the cockpit. The floor guy gestured for me to step up to customs, so I said later to Chiasa and moved up to the booth. I saw her move to the booth beside mine on command as well. At customs, the kind of tension that was so thick when I arrived in America from Sudan with Uma was not present. In Japan. The male authority who faced me didn't appear to believe that I was a problem that had to be eliminated 
guilty on sight. Even though he represented Japanese law, he didn't try to put in place a whole new set of rules and restrictions restrictions, just for me. The officer, a blank-faced Japanese male, simply looked at my passport and then up at my face. He stepped to his left, pointed a camera at me, and snapped my photo. He stamped my passport, inserted a piece of paper, and waved me on. I looked at the stamp and the paper. It said I could visit Japan for 90 days before I was required to leave. It also instructed me to keep my passport in my possession at all times. At the luggage conveyor while waiting for my duffel bag to come around, I calculated finally that 29,000 yen was about $250. The American dollar was stronger than the yen and $85 would get me 10,000 yen. Five days for $250, I thought. That's $50 a day. It was high, but not too high. I knew from the jump that I would have to get someone to translate for me along the way. This girl, Giasa, had offered me enough information in a short period of time for me to feel comfortable with her offer. I'd get her phone number and use her services when I needed them. For now, I was throwing my belongings on a cart and heading for the phone to call my wife. Midnight, I heard a voice call. It was Yuka and her friends. They were waving wildly. I put my hand up once as my way to say, Sayonara. I did notice that the rest of their kendo team seemed to be traveling together, but Chiasa was left standing alone, pulling her belongings off the belt for herself. Beyond customs and baggage, when I reached the Japanese side of the airport, everything changed. Signs were all written in kanji. At the airport convenience store, I stood silently in the aisle observing. The foods and drinks were all labeled in kanji. I recognized some American candies like Snickers and Juicy Fruit only because of the identical colors of the Japanese packaging, but the names of the candies were all written in kanji. Even the ingredient listings were all in kanji. As I approached the cashiers and instinctively spoke in simple English, they looked at me curiously. I realized they spoke and understood only Japanese, even down to words like yes and no, as well as greetings. I wanted to purchase a phone card, but stood staring at the wall, unable to decipher what was what, unable to read properly. I thought about Uma. Her everyday life in America was like this. As a man, it was an uncomfortable feeling to me to not be able to read the language of the place where I was standing, living, and breathing. Illiteracy reduced me, I thought, into the position of a young child. I observed the cash transactions taking place. Unlike the Americans, the Japanese cashiers received the payment from the customer and placed it down on the register for both the customer and cashier to see. They repeated the amount of the purchase, the amount they received, and then counted out the change and handed it to the customer before putting away the cash the customer had paid. 
I figured they wanted to eliminate any problems before they could occur. A forgetful customer or a con man would never get away with saying, I gave you a 20, when they had really only paid with a 10. I liked the way the girls folded the bills perfectly between their fingers and held them there. I liked the way the cashiers counted back the cash rapidly after spreading the bills like a hand fan. I picked up my bags, turned and walked out, looking for a public payphone. When I finally found it, I picked up the phone and stood staring. All the printed directions were in Japanese. I couldn't even figure out the cost of the call. I put the receiver to my ear. The recorded voice on the other end of the phone was speaking only in Japanese. I looked around the well-lit, immaculately clean and well-organized airport and thought to myself, I'm in Japan. I searched out the customer information desk, was told, Chatomate, by a small, polite man who raised his index finger up to signal, wait one minute, please. Chatomate, I repeated it to myself for my own memorizing. The woman, who appeared to help me, spoke some English. She asked me a few questions, then told me which phone card to purchase and how to work the payphone. She also told me how and where to purchase my ticket for the airport limousine to Shinjuku. I didn't need a limousine, but the ticket only cost $20. It was a two-hour ride, so I agreed, and then I called Uma. Alhamdulillah, she said, in her early morning relaxed Sunday voice. We are all safe and fine. You know that you can call me anytime you want to talk, but focus on your wife now. She needs you more, Uma said graciously. I called Iwa Ikeda at 9 p.m. The call went right through. Moshi Moshi, a feminine voice asked. A feminine voice said, Is this Ikeda-san? I asked. Hi, she responded softly yet with excitement. This is my Onaka. Thank you for taking my call. Is my wife there? I asked calmly, though I was feeling anxious. Nandi? She asked. I knew that that meant what in Japanese. Akimi, Nakamura, is she there? I asked patiently and politely as well. Iwa Ikeda said something in response, but I couldn't hear it because an announcement came over the speaker system in the airport. The announcement was spoken in Japanese, so I ignored it. Ikeda-san? Hi, chatomate, she answered. My heart raced some. Mayonaka? I heard Iwa's voice again. Where are you? She was speaking English now in an even higher pitched tone than she'd used before. I paused. I wanted to hear Akimi's voice first before answering any questions. Instead, I heard a click. The payphone went dead. Immediately, I called back. I got the answering machine. Her message was spoken all in Japanese, but even an idiot could understand to begin leaving his message after the beat. So I did. Ikeda-san, we were disconnected. I'll call back again in five minutes. Five minutes later, I called and got her answering machine again. I hung up. I stood there thinking, what's the meaning of this? Five more minutes, and I called once more. Her machine came on. Calmly, 
I left my second message. I'll call back in the morning. This is my onaka. I was tight now, uneasy and perplexed. This was some unnecessary bullshit. My limo was due to arrive outdoors at space number 18. I pushed my car through the sliding doors. As I eased down the walkway, I saw Chiasa standing on a line behind her pushcart loaded down with bags and big items. She had one item that was in a case that stood seven feet tall. She also had what looked like a trombone case and two suitcases, one big, one small. She was about five foot seven with a powerful body and a petite frame. I didn't know how she was going to move around all that stuff on her own since she had to ditch the airport cart and travel back into Tokyo. Can I have your telephone number? I asked her, and handing her a pencil and my small pad that I kept in my pocket for important info and contacts. She wrote it down instantly as though she had been sure that I would find her and ask. I'm never really home, so we should set a time, she said. Let's meet tomorrow night. That will give you time to figure out that you won't be able to figure anything out, she added, completely assured. Then we can meet at my dojo, fight, and get it over with. I think people respect each other faster if they fight first, experience each other's style. Then she wrote down the name of her dojo and the address, and in bold ink, 6 p.m., we'll eat dinner together afterward. Thank you.